Hello, Ash. Um, happy November. Hopefully things are going well in your world. They are. They are. Uh, the time's changed. Uh, so now our nights are sad. Yes. Because uh, they're so, so dark. dark. Out. <laughs> <laughs> yep. The, the pets have yet to acclimate. So like uh, we got uh, they woke up early begging for food. The lunchtime was was at the wrong time. I just walked past them. Uh, begging for their food this evening it's like it's gotta it's gotta be hard on, on cats and dogs who don't i mean it's hard enough on us who know why it's happening animals is an entirely different story yeah i have basically that same story but with a five-year-old child instead <laughs> literally that's exactly what happened this morning i was trying to do a little bit of sleeping in and um someone was hungry uh so we had to put on some clothes and run to the bagel shop uh but yeah once i started thinking all right the time changed yeah it makes sense it's already mm-hmm. kind of like you know mid mid morning in our in our bodies uh but not on the clock yes i i swear every year it happens it takes longer for my stomach and everything else to acclimate so it'll be very interesting to see how long it takes this year yeah um cool um well hopefully i i still can't believe it's november um but um some of the stuff that uh, one of the things that i wanted to talk about this week um was ran across this cool little application um slash uh development environment based on hypercard or inspired by hypercard not based on hypercard um and um if if you're young enough that you don't remember or, or don't know what HyperCard was. It was this really cool um, uh, development slash card editor slash, you know, early days before before the web where you could put images and text and link these things together, hence the word hyper and all of this stuff. And it was extremely popular, really cool to play around with. Um, and I loved seeing this fly by. I think I might have saw, saw it either on Reddit or on um, Hacker News. Um, but it's a little tool called Decker and it's delightfully retro, um, for anyone who's looking for like 24 bit color or high performance or, um, arbitrary screen sizes. This is not it. It is exposing a very, um, old style Mac OS UI. It is fixed screen sizes. It is one bit graphics. (laughs) So everything is pixelated and everything like that. Uh, But on the flip side, it also has um, a little bit uh, more modern of a scripting language, which is really interesting to to talk about a little bit. Um, And you can generate um, little decks that run on your local machine, or you can generate HTML pages for sharing with others. And I just thought, I know you have a history with HyperCard in the past. Um, I haven't had so much a history with HyperCard, but I've I've come from the world of like VB script and very much rad application development. And um, it, it tickled my, my, bo- my, uh, my uh, happy bone a little bit. And I, I was, I knew it would be an interesting topic for us to talk about. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, hyper, hypercard alone is one of those things. I feel like I could just uh, go down the rabbit hole on. It was such a meaningful part of having a Mac when I was a kid mm-hmm. for, for me personally. And, it, you know, it's been interesting over the years because every now and again, something like Decker will come along. Um, well, I won't say something like Decker. Decker is like this whole other level. But sometimes there will be just like this wave of nostalgia that comes along about, hey, do you remember HyperCard and how awesome it was? And um, I am 
always going to get on board that train when that happens. Cause I'm like, yes, I do. Um, <laughs> you know, I just burned countless hours, uh, in high school, I think particular in particular, uh, making hyper card stacks. And that, that's what they were called. I think, you know, in Decker they're, they're called decks, but either way, it's like, you kind of have like a deck of cards in Decker in hyper card. The whole paradigm was like, you had these sort of like stacks of, what you might think of as like almost like index cards. Mm -hmm. Um, But then like, as you mentioned, you can kind of put a lot of things into them that make them interactive in interesting ways uh, without ever needing really to know how to code. Um, And so you used to just make, you can make little games in it. You could maybe build presentations in it. Well, not maybe you could do that Um, there. uh, You could all, all kinds of just crazy things and fun things that you could do. Um, And, I think one of the things I love about the whole periodic waves of nostalgia for HyperCard is that for me personally, when I was using HyperCard, like, I think I knew one or two other people that even knew what it was. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this was pre-internet or at least pre-internet for for me and, and our family, my family when I was growing up. So, you know, it it's just so interesting to find out retroactively, like, how big of an install base HyperCard had and how, how much of a fan base it had and what some of the practical uses were. Right. Think, you know, famously, um, you know, this game called Mist was mm-hmm. created oh, as a HyperCard stack, right? And um, I I did not know that until much later. Uh, but that that's pretty wild if you think about, you know, that just this little application that um, was sitting on a Mac could be leveraged to build something <laughs> that turns into like this whole game. And, you know, again, like we're talking, I'm guessing early nineties for that one, if I'm not mistaken, mm, if maybe I remember was, right, maybe it was the eighties, but um, I don't know. Like just, I think there was something super empowering about it. And I'll never forget. Like the first time I saw <laughs> the first time I saw a web browser, I looked at it and, you know, like a, an actual graphical web browser. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at it going, oh, wow, this is this looks a lot like HyperCard, this this Internet thing like that. That was my so similar, yeah. frame of reference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, I I, I remember it, it's it's amazing to think like when you bring up Mist that that that's where that started. But it's like the perfect, especially if you remember back to Mist 1.0 or what have you, where it is largely a clickable multimedia experience and almost like choose your own adventure, but with pictures instead of with text and all of this stuff with a little bit of state management. And it's like, it makes sense like HyperCard making that kind of thing really easy. And then I think about, and now Matt now see where it's turned into now mist is like these fully rich 3d things um, that you can walk through, but it's amazing what you were able to accomplish with, um, images and clickable areas and and going back and forth between various index cards and 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 your decks and because you had a multi a machine that was capable of some rich multimedia being able to play audio and video and things like that too eventually not i'm sure not in the original version but um that's it's it makes perfect sense now that i think about it that mist would be a natural fit for that <laughs> yeah uh, and i think especially um like one one of the things that I liked to do with it at the time, uh, and again, I'm not sure that I knew to express it in these words, but some of them were like that kind of like 
well, like a choose your own adventure book. Mm-hmm. So you could you could build those stories like that, you know, and uh, kind of like give the user the ability to kind of click through like these different paths going ultimately to some sort of conclusion. Um, but yeah, I don't know what it was, but it was just something about the ability to put a button on a page and then assign that button an action. And often that action was simply when the user clicks this button, go to this card in right. the stack and that, but that enough was just like, wow. I mean, just being able to click through something like that. And it's like, this is neat. Um, and I think you could set up things like auto transitions to do sort of like, you know, very basic, um, you remember like a, I don't know if you ever did this in school, but you know that flip frame uh, uh-huh. animation style yes. where you just like fold a piece of paper in half and get to go back and forth. Well, you can do something very like uh, very simple like that. I, if I recall correctly, it's just like you know have have some of the the um, the cards in the stack automatically transition. So I, I, there was just a lot of fun that you could do uh, that you could have with it, uh, and of course there was a, a scripting. Uh, capability as well if you wanted to dive even deeper into it mm-hmm. um so just i mean lots of really cool things um that that hypercard offered those of us that actually kind of spent some time playing with it um and i don't know looking at decker and playing around <laughs> with it this last few days just really there's something about it that just <laughs> takes takes me back in a good way and also um yeah i think there's just some basic sort of uh, some things are super easy. Some things on some the other things, hand feel yes. very limited and it's <laughs> sort of like, which will, which will it be? Um, mm-hmm. sort of like get some neurons firing in a, in a way that maybe I haven't felt in a while. Yeah. I will say it's felt very nostalgic. Number one, because, uh, if anything, I'm a sucker for anything that's very, that, that appears retro, even if behind the scenes, it's not, um, I mean, it's built on, um, it runs on on a modern Mac or Windows device. Um, it's uh, presenting very retro, but that doesn't mean the internals are. But um, that that aesthetic has been um, making me very nostalgic. But it's also been bringing me back to the days when um, when I was in college. I learned uh, Pascal. Later, I learned like Visual Basic uh, for um, Windows with the with that. Uh, typical or, or, you know, that 90s development environment where you were dragging controls onto the screen and wiring things up with a little bit of code. And both of those things, Decker is just like really triggering that those kind of uh, memories, both happy and sometimes frustrating because you can sometimes run into the limitations of that environment. There's part of me that's like, oh, it's amazing that this is out here. There's also part of me that's going, I am kind of glad that in a lot of ways, this is not how we write complex applications anymore. (laughs) Oh, couldn't agree more. I, I think, um, you know, we're, we're going to be singing its praises most of the time, but I'll say a, f- a few of the walls that I ran into include, you know, you got to like remember to switch what tool you're working in. And so like, yes. that is so tough for me. I'll be in the widget mode and then I do something in a script or, you know, add an action to a button or whatever. And then I'm like, I want to go in and just fire that off. But no, you need to go back up into the menu and select yes. the... I guess it's, is it the interaction tool? Interact like, mode, yeah. Yeah, there, interact There's mode. very definitely a modal, like we're, we're, I'm used to like modal editing, like in VI, for example, less so in the GUI. And there's very much so that aspect of it is because it's both an interaction tool running this thing and an editor. And you have to always constantly switch between those. I found myself going, mm, I wish there was a keyboard shortcut for this. <laughs> 
Yes. Oh, I was looking for keyboard shortcuts that whole time because also <laughs> if you're if you get into the scripting piece of it at all, um, which I, I did uh, for a little uh, bit, and you know when you open the script editor, yes, you, that also is a mode. So <laughs> what that means is that you can't really just be like have a script open and also have like your UI sitting side by side. So um, let's just say, for example. Like the the script editor is like here is a box you can type a script into and then you hit save. Now yes. when you hit save, it will call you out um, if you've made certain errors, which is nice. But there's no there's not like any autocompletes or anything. So um, let's say for example you're trying to reference a button or a field. Well, you you need to remember what did what what did you name that button or field? And if you can't no see it on whatsoever. The <laughs> then I, I just found myself as like, I write a few things in a script, try to get it in a place where it wasn't going to get yell at me when I leave the script. So I could go back and look and say, what was that thing called? And then go back into the script editor. Lots and yes. lots of that sort of round tripping just to yes. do simple operations. Yes. And um, I, I, I suspect we will share some similar opinions. Um, the website for anyone who's curious, we'll have it in the show notes, um, but it's also at beyondloom.com slash Decker. Um, and it describes itself as a multimedia platform for creating and sharing interactive documents with sound images, hypertext and scripted behavior. What I really think is cool about this version um, compared to like way back in the day, dis distrib or distribution is much easier because you can one play with this in a web browser, but it also generates HTML files that you could share with other people. Um, so it's a little bit easier than, you know, before the internet, how in the world are you sharing these things of uploading them onto BBSs or what have you, um, which I thought was really cool. Um, I think the fascinating parts for me around um, Decker is it is very much opinionated about what it is, what you're able to build with it and what it doesn't do. So like I mentioned earlier, it's very retro specific, right? Or, or very retro themed. So one bit graphics, there's no color here there's the the sound is very specific 8-bit wave files which based upon my memory did not i mean it was cool for the era do not sound good today <laughs> um so there's very much these kind of artificial limitations um but they 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 fit the theme really nicely um and for um if you're not familiar at all with hypercard Basically, Decker lets you um, switch between these two modes, interact and um, widget mode or edit mode, for lack of a better term. And you can draw paint on it. So like MS Paint style editing, you can add your own widgets like buttons and text fields. And on the website, they have an example of the the uh, someone building a calculator. So like you can get even more complicated here and have interactive elements um, so it's really kind of cool. Um, and it, in, it invites playing around and experimenting and starting to build something, uh, pretty easily in my opinion. Like you can just go straight into this. You can see how the examples are all built, which is really cool. I think the more that I get into web development these days, especially when you start getting into WASM and all these other things is like, it gets, or bundled code, it gets harder to see, like, how did they do this thing? Mm. And in, in hyper in Decker, you can go, well, here's how they did this thing because everything is right here. It's all editable in a way. It kind of reminds me of small talk in the past of these very much environments that are the, the, the code and the environment you're, 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 you're editing in the same place that you're running all of this stuff, um, which is really, really cool. But um so it's highly visual. It's also highly limited. Um, so like to your point of, 
I can't see my script and my UI at the same time, I'm sure is partly a function of this thing is probably emulating what 640 by 480 resolution or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's very, very restricted in terms of information density. Um, but I find, um, I don't know about you, but when I'm building things, sometimes those restrictions can be the most, um, can lead to the most interesting outcomes because you have to play, think about how you play within the rules and also how do you work around those rules? Yeah, I, I would agree. I think it's a, it was in a lot of ways, like when, when I was running into walls, it wasn't like one of those things where I'm like, oh, this is, this is dumb. I'm going to go do something else. It was more <laughs> like, no. I'm going to figure out how to make this thing happen. Mm -hmm. And there, that that's a, that's a great uh, sort of mode to be in because oftentimes, yeah, we do. It's easy to just kind of jump onto the next thing. Um, and especially in a world where, you know, as web developer, you know, we always have so many tabs and windows open to do <laughs> yes. anything. This one's the Decker saying, yeah, about that. You're not going to get to do most of that stuff. It's very tightly focused on the exact thing you're doing at the moment, which in some ways I can appreciate. So I, I will, because if if ever someone who's like deep into Deckers, like listening to some of what we just said, they're like screaming, but what about the <laughs> REPL? Well, I mean, it has like a, it turns yes. out, so I was looking at the, um, the, that calculator example. So like if you do go to the, the webpage, like the calculator example is like there is a GIF and you can literally watch this person build the calculator like in an animated form and just see mm -hmm. what they're doing. And um, they do have like a little REPL that you can pop up at the bottom of the screen for scripting. And I, I know I saw that when I first started and then I promptly forgot about it until right now. So <laughs> I, I don't even know how to invoke that, but I, I think that might be a viable option if you need to just like try some stuff out. Yes. And I will say I was using that, um, toward the end of my example. So um, I, uh, I I built a very basic example. Uh, I'll have the link in the show notes. Um, I'm not terribly, I, I couldn't think of anything better to do um, or, you know, in terms of a fun game or anything like that. My uh, brain cells at this adjusted hour of the day were not there. So I thought, mm -hmm. well, why not do something that has a little bit of graphics and and is related to what we're doing? So I said, let me build a deck that has um, our, our podcast episodes, um, has an image and then lets you go click to open a web page to listen to the episode. Um, and so with that idea in mind, it's like everything kind of uh, fell into place a little bit, but I will say what was immensely valuable with this, because as far as like, there, there might be some, uh, there's some syntax checking, but there's not like runtime checking. So this goes back to very much those old days of, um, or, or maybe not old days, because uh, most languages would fail like drastically, like you would crash or something like that. Like there, if if something went horribly wrong, but in here it's like there's a lot of silent failure. If it doesn't know what you want it to do, it just kind of doesn't do much of anything, or it like puts a zero in in a value or something like that because it does a lot of um, type coercion isn't quite the right word, but it does a lot of aliasing of types. Um, and so initially, I did what, like you did. I kind of forgot about the REPL. But I come to appreciate it because it's really handy. There is a keyboard shortcut for that one. I think it's Command um, Command L, mm. and so I start that that started to become very familiar to me, and it started to become more second nature there of testing what I was about to put in the script there first, because in that environment it doesn't take the whole screen. 
It's just the bottom area of the screen and you have access to all the elements on the page or on the card. So you can start to inspect what are they currently doing and will what I want to do actually do anything useful. Um, I used it a lot for like inspecting the values of something and then you can like copy and paste. And so um, I kind of wish I hadn't forgotten about it initially because the further I got into it, the more I was finding this REPL being oh, this is, this is the way you start. And then you kind of move things around because there's no, there's, there's no TypeScript or any like, um, code intelligence in the script editor. It's just, (laughs) you type it, you hope you got it right. And if you didn't, well, nothing will happen, or maybe it'll pull in the wrong value or something like that. Um, and so that REPL is invaluable, um, to play around with. Yeah. So did, did you ever, there's another way to get a REPL did you go through the process of like building from source locally? I did not. That was one of the things that I wanted to do um, because yeah, there is another version of the REPL that is um, you can invoke from like the, the command line and actually have as a proper scripting language. Oh. Um, and the scripting language is called uh, LIL, L-I-L. Um, and it can do the same things that you can do inside the, the Decker environment. What I think is really cool is there's a lot of uh, commands in there that are also about creating and modifying decks and uh, Decker files. So you could actually imagine a world where I've built up scripts on a command line that then create these little Decker files with modifications or variations or based upon some data, um, which is something I really want to try and play around with. I did not quite get that far. <laughs> that might be the only way to dynamically yes. build with external data. Yep. Because as far as I know, I and I, I looked around for this. The, the first thing I wanted to do is like query data from like a local database or something. And, and you can't do that as far as I can tell, because there's no way to make like network mm-hmm. calls. So, um, you know that that's on my my wish list. I, I'm assuming like that's not an option on purpose. But you know, if you were to do what you're describing there, which is like use the command line tool, you to to build out decks. Um, at least before you do that, then you're able to first say, for example, pull some sort of external data from something like be it an API or a mm-hmm. local data source, and then ha- have that be an input into whatever script you're running to, to build out that, that Decker deck uh, before it gets opened. But I I'm guessing that once the deck is created, now it's kind of stuck in time. So I, yes. I'm sure there would ha- be some like specific, I, I still think that could be interesting, but you wouldn't probably, well, I don't think you could use it to like uh, for the bus schedule or, tra- no. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> in terms of like real time, when's the subway coming? Like that kind of thing wouldn't no. work. Yeah. And, and that was kind of the first thing that I ran into with with my idea was, oh, my, my initial thought process was, well, let me fetch the RSS and I'll, depending on how complex it was, you know, would I be able to parse it with their scripting language? Because it's not JavaScript. It's not a language I'm familiar with. Um, but yeah, the, the lack of network requests was the very first thing. And I, I, I understand maybe um, I, it is on my wish list for sure. But it also, if you look at the aesthetics of this environment, like, did you have internet requests in, in you know, these early versions of HyperCard? Eh. Um, so I can kind of see where maybe that's an in, in explicit limitation. I hope maybe that changes. 
Um, but yeah, it's like, okay, well, I can't dynamically create a grid that shows uh, every episode of our podcast and have it go out and fetch the newest version when it's there. And so that was my next step is like, well, there is this um, uh, scripting language and they call it the little terminal lilt um, to actually be able to invoke it from your command line. And I think that would be the next step is have a little bit of pre-processing going on to build out, um, to go fetch the RSS from like the, the podcast, turn it into a CSV file. Um, that, that was the other challenge that I was face, facing is like, oh, back in the day, you know, back to CSVs where there's very explicit, um, like when it sees a comma period, that's when it's going to break. So even if it's in quotes, the comma is the end of that column. Um, you know, all of those difficulties. Um, and then you could pass it to uh, pass the CSV file into the Decker file and say, oh, the CSV file is attached to this grid regenerate that and then, you know, put it, push it somewhere. So I think that's the flow that one could take. Um, I'm half tempted to do like a webhook or something like that, that says, oh, when this RSS feed updates, go run this little script, update the, update the file and, and add it to the grid just to see what that would be like. Um, maybe then, that may be another weekend project in the future. Yeah. And then maybe force it to somehow force it to, um, once once that runs and the the new deck is built then you'd have to have a way to sort of swap out what's currently yes. being shown yeah so for that one i was imagining um there's any number of hosts out there but i like to use netlify Net, netlify uh, if i could talk correctly um and i've usually used netlify with um uh, like GitHub or what have you, and more complex projects that I just want to have uh, hosted on the web somewhere without necessarily going through all the effort of my own web server and my own domain. Um, some of these may serve as examples for some of the other projects that I work on, or um, occasionally um, there's a few organizations that I work with for teaching like React. And so it's a really good platform for saying, here's a, here's a web page think GitHub pages, but um, a little bit more control over everything. Um, what's cool about Netlify is they have uh, this way to just pull in an HTML file. And that's what Decker will export is it, it can export just a single HTML file. And you can just tell Netlify to replace this file with the next file. And I think that's how you would get the not not quite dynamic, but hybrid between static and dynamic. So you could replace the file with a new version when you saw a change, I think. Um, so that's, that, that's, that's where my gears are going these days to work around the lack of the network request um, in the language. That's, that's super cool. Um, Cause one of the first ideas I had actually uh, would have been literally a train tracker for, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. we live in New York. We're very close to a subway station wouldn't it be nice, you know, especially on the weekends, um, like this happened to us last night, actually, before we went out. Um, oh, no. Uh, it, it was just like you on, on the weekends, the MTA doesn't exactly <laughs> run frequently, depending on where you live. No. <laughs> uh, and so I think we showed up like right at the wrong time and ended up kind of sitting there waiting on a train for oh, you know, that's no fun plus minutes. And, you know, fine. There are worse problems to have in the world. But at the same time, like now imagine torrential downpour or it's snowing in the super cold so like wouldn't it be nice just to say well if i know i've got to wait 15 minutes uh why don't i spend that time waiting in my house as opposed to mm -hmm. 
So, I mean, like, anyways, that's, <laughs> having a train tracker would be nice. The doing it in Decker. I mean, there's a thousand ways to do something like that. But I, I immediately thought, <laughs> oh, it'd be really neat to do in Decker and then just like stick it on a screen, like some, you know, maybe an old iPad or, or mm-hmm. something and kind of just toss it next to the door. Um, so anyways, I, I, I'm starting to think a little bit more these days about the concept of home labbing, um, mm-hmm. which is that's a term I hadn't come across uh, until recently. And I, I, not, not much to talk about there for me personally yet, but it's something I'm um, kind of feeling myself working towards kind of like building these little, uh, you know, kind of like the home ta- digital projects, like, right. you know, having, a, you know, that kind of screen by the door or, you know, running, running some of your own sort of cloud stuff at home or, mm-hmm. you know, building your own VPN or whatever it might be. Uh, there's a lot of really cool stuff you can do, something I want to look into. But um, yeah, the, that was the first thought I had when I looked at Decker was like, this is what I want to do. <laughs> Yet, there's no way to do it. At yes. least not a straightforward way. Um, but I think what we just discussed <laughs> which, so, could be an option. <laughs> I, I, I think it's definitely an option. It's just a matter of, um, you know, just uh, going through the trouble of implementing <laughs> it. But yeah, that, that actually sounds like that would work. Which which is probably one of the the, the um like I, I I've not had to think about workarounds in that in that fashion, but that's one of those cool things with like, oh, these artificial limitations. Like some of these other environments, like you have um what is it, chip eight and Pico eight, like these very artificially limited game development environments that are powered by like a modern language, Lua, if I remember right, but they have very specific artificial limitations. And then that's part of the charm. And here you go in this, like with Decker is like, oh, I need a way to get dynamic data. What is, it is certainly not the most efficient way, but what is a way that I can make that happen? And that's, that's, it's, it's really cool. I, I think to, to explore those things and to get your brain thinking on different tracks, certainly not like something you would say, oh, this is going to be production or whatever, but for personal stuff, like home labbing stuff, I sense like it, it might be good enough. And I sense some future episodes maybe um, that maybe fall out of this because there's been some things that I've been wanting to experiment with as well, like um, uh, around like some Raspberry Pi stuff, um, doing um, some e-ink stuff and things like that, um, which I think um, would be really fascinating to explore. So you could even imagine like your own little local server doing all this work to check the bus schedule, create a new Docker file your iPad is loading a web page and it can refresh on a periodic basis. And that's the cool thing with this is Decker does work in an iPad. I don't, I don't know about the editing experience. I didn't try typing code, but the output HTML file does work just fine in an iPad. It, it, the, the touch interface works just fine. Um, which I thought was really rather cool. Cause that's the first place I played with it was on my iPad. Yeah. Um, I don't know how deep I got into it on my iPad, but it's interesting because these days, like whether I'm on a Mac or an iPad is so fluid. I know, I know I was on Decker at first on my iPad for some reason, I guess it, it was just what I had with me at the time. Mm-hmm. I, it was before I got into the scripting aspect of Decker. So I was just kind of messing around, but I have that, whatever that magnetized magic keyboard thing is the, mm-hmm. that has the trackpad on it. So it's very laptop-esque in that way. And I, I, when I was working with Decker on the iPad, I don't remember feeling like I was hitting walls that felt like they were very much um, because of the iPad. Right. Most of the walls I was hitting when I got started. So I think getting started with Decker, there's definitely a learning curve, especially yes. uh, if you're not just if you've never done something like HyperCard, or even if you have, then you're coming at it with some uh, sort of assumptions or expectations that, yeah, um, 
may not serve you well, you kind of have to, you know, start with the sort of beginner's mind approach to Decker. Uh, but yeah, I, I think at the time when I was on the iPad, it felt pretty normal to use. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've also, yeah, that's one of the interesting things about this. You you mentioned that Decker can spit out HTML that runs in the browser. And so it, it's been like this extremely fluid experience in that way, because I might be on the iPad, I might be on the Mac. And even if I'm on my Mac, sometimes I'm like in there, um, in in their browser based experience, mm-hmm. like, and then sometimes I have like the downloaded yes application. They say it's native. I don't know what they mean when they say that. Like, I didn't look at the code, but I like I can't <laughs> That's imagine. A good point. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I wonder if by native they just mean like you can download a, a you know an application and install it, mm-hmm. or if there's actually like a different branch that, that's running type of code that wouldn't run in a browser so I, I haven't i didn't dig into that but either way like yeah. um it's it's interesting how just like i'm bouncing back and forth between different like the browser versus an application versus on the mac on versus on the ipad and it all just felt pretty normal yeah and it it, it all um it, it it doesn't like scream at you that you're um artif- oddly limited like some some experiences can be like on an ipad or, or whatnot now without the magic um keyboard and all the like like um there would definitely be some challenges there with doing text editing and things like that because like clicking an input field ios doesn't know to show the keyboard or raise the the mobile keyboard but um it's definitely really kind of cool to be able to just bounce between all these environments regardless of what 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 tool i'm using um, I do know there are some differences between the native version and the browser version. So when I when I use the brow- native version, like I can, it opens up a Mac OS esque um, open dialog, but not modern Mac OS. Like Mac OS from, you know, the early days. And when you're in a browser, like the only way to get a file in is to open up the browser's open dialog. So there's some subtle changes that they're doing there. How far that goes in terms of the experience? Like, is there still is it? Is it wrapped with a web view and running mostly in the browser? Like, I don't know the details there. It might be interesting to dig into and and figure that out a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing that I would point out is if you're on the web, you can get like these two extra tool palettes for when you're drawing things. Um, Mm -hmm. And as far as I can tell, that's not available if you have the downloaded application. Presumably because like when when you're in the browser, uh, if your browser window is any bigger than whatever the... Uh, intended aspect ratio or the size of the Decker window is like then everything else is letterbox. It's just like mm-hmm. surrounded in, in black. And so if you go into like using yours, and I think this is a good way to transition hopefully into like the things that, that we built. Um, yes. But like if you were to go into like yours that you hosted on Netlify and you go to the Decker menu, um, if you go all the way down, it says uh, in under Decker, it says toolbars. If you click that, then you get like these sort of two different ah you know sorry i'm thinking in real time here but i just realized this also would have been a massive unlock had i done this so <laughs> in terms of speed so um it's not just drawing tools actually it is you you get the ability to like select widgets um yes. or some of the other things that you might want to do like there's a instead of going and dragging into a menu every time like there's just some extra ui that they give you on the side there which is really handy um I discovered that a little bit too late um, in in the process because it does encourage you just to jump straight in. And yeah, you do need that extra space to actually be able to see the toolbars. 
Um, that's a little bit of like it's in there. I mean, it's in the menu. So like it's not exactly hidden, but toolbars was not initially like I didn't realize what I would get when I clicked it. So it wasn't something that 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 screamed at me. Oh, click this and try this until I was further on. Um, I did find um, as I was getting through to the end of um, uh, building this example, if you switch the desktop version to full screen, that will give you the option to show the toolbars because what? now you have a little bit more space. If you're <laughs> in the compressed window view, you don't get the option for the toolbars. Oh, yep. There it is. Oh, <laughs> I never clicked. So it's interesting. In um, I, I, I'm remembering back to like, so if you... If, let's say go back to like 1986 or something and you're on a Mac and you have HyperCard or Decker or whatever. Well, one of the, at least for me, one of the first things I was going to do in, a, in an application back then was go through everything and every menu item just to see what's there. Because mm -hmm. it wasn't like you had, like Decker takes the same approach to discoverability of features that uh, an application of that era would, which is good luck. We have, <laughs> yes. we, we're giving you menus. What else could you want? And so that's handy to sort of just kind of remember. It's like, oh, actually that was the, that was the affordance at the time was that you have all of these menus because that way everything's discoverable and you don't have to know magic incantations to get what you need. But fast forward to 2022, none of us are really trained anymore to like when we enter a new environment, just to select a bunch of, men, you know, right. open a bunch of menus and see what's <laughs> in there and try happens. it all. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, that, that is definitely one of those things. And so I suspect there is a, is a whole lot more going that, that uh, more affordances that would make things a lot easier going, going through this as one plays and explores and, and learns about it. And yeah, to your point, like, um, that is a very different mindset. Like I mean, even when we think about our games, right? You have today where every game starts up with usually a very robust tutorial. Here's how you jump. Here's how you run. Here's how you block or fight or shoot or whatever. Um, and this is a side tangent, but um, I recently got um, the play date in that I had ordered a while back. And the games that pop come, come to this are in that vein or in the previous vein of here's a game, go figure it out. Like sometimes there will be on, on screen buttons, but like to understand how to really play the game, you're, you're, you're exploring and finding out what's going on rather than, oh, here's a full on tutorial. Some of the games do have a little bit of tutorialization, but because they're much smaller, more constrained, they tend to hew towards that previous era of you got the game, go figure it out. <laughs> and some of that's part of the fun. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. Um, that's cool. You got your play date. Um, I went through that same process a while back when I got mine. And uh, yeah, the, <laughs> it's so interesting, isn't it? Like I, I remember like so years ago when we were working on um, kind of helping the first sort of wave of Adobe XD plugins launch. Mm -hmm. I remember referring to some early plugin efforts um, as kind of having this kind of almost like what I used to refer to as almost like the Atari game problem, which is like you, yes. you're, you're, you're suddenly dropped into an environment and there's a lot of uh, sort of knowledge expected of the user that, or due diligence that the user is going to have to do outside of that, that environment. Right? right. So old games, for example, like you, you wouldn't just be able to necessarily like turn on an old game and, and then totally understand what it wants you to do. The play date very much has that. And some of those games I found to be um, super fun 
because of that, it was like, well, I guess I'm just going to have to feel my way through this because there's no mm-hmm. really other way to understand and what I, what it wants me to do. Um, but some of them, I was also just like, okay, I, I, <laughs> this is not, yeah. this feels like work. <laughs> yes, they, there is that fine line to walk. It's like if it, if it turns into too complicated or like um, it's not really obvious um, or if it's like crazy difficult. Um, I think one of the first ones I, I got into is like, the, it, the difficulty curve, it, it, there's not a ramped curve. It's very hard the moment you get it. And um, that can be a little bit challenging. Like I find I have less patience for that these days. But if I remember back to the days of you know me gaming on my Commodore 64, say, and I was kind of assumed you're not going to, the games aren't big enough to have full on ramped up difficulty curves. Um, that was, I was totally fine with it back then. <laughs> um, these days, sometimes the patience there is, is, is not a, as not quite there as I would like. Um, <laughs> so it is that fine line to walk. And I think like, what's interesting is Decker does just have enough, like the entry point to Decker is a web page. So there's enough context and enough, like, here's the manual, here's the, here's some examples that you can go play with where it's, um, you're not like just thrown a, a blank screen and said and told to go build something. You have an example that you can go explore with right off the bat, which is an interesting kind of like walking the middle ground of, yes, there's tutorials here. If you go dig into like turn off interaction mode or read the manual, um, but it's also not totally opaque where you're just having to figure everything out on your own. Yeah, I well, I found that there were basically three different resources when I was um, building my Decker deck that I was constantly referring to. Mm-hmm. One is the Decker manual. One yes. is the Lil manual. So Lil's the scripting language. Yes. And then the other one is their um, five GUIs example. Mm-hmm. And having those three things open, typically I could find what I needed. Um, I'll say that there were a couple of things while, while I was building that really just, I was basically just typing stuff into a box and trying to figure out if I could get it yes. to work. Um, and, and eventually it did, uh, but it, it, it took a while. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about like what we built. Yes. Um, and yours is super cool. So I'm going to go first. <laughs> uh, also, I haven't deployed mine. I don't know if, I, if I'll actually get around to it. So this won't be something, you know, necessarily I'm, I'm not, I'm going to assume that no one can see this, but basically um, what I have is a, uh, a, a f- what they call a field, right? So this mm-hmm. is like a text input, and then next to it is a button. And I made a little to do app. So um, in you have this button that says new to do, and next to it is a input field to type what the to do is. And when you click new to do, it adds that to a grid. Mm-hmm. So a grid is another type of widget in Decker, and it's basically like a sort of spreadsheet style kind of you know cell based row and yeah. column based layout. So my my grid just has two um, columns. One says item and one says status. Um, the item is the text that you put into the field. Uh, so the when you hit new to do, it grabs the text and puts it into the grid. And then the status one is a special type of column in a grid called a Boolean icon. Um, mm-hmm. Getting that to work um, <laughs> because uh, like the document, yes. it is documented, but they never it's tell you. It's ex- confusing as hell. <laughs> they do not tell you exactly like how to actually do it. They're just like, <laughs> here it is. And I'm like, sweet, I want that. So, um, but I did eventually figure it out. So the, the Boolean icon is basically like you can pass true or false. If false, then there's nothing 
there's nothing in that column. But if true, then it displays in that column a checklist. Or oh, sorry, nice. a che- sorry, check not a checklist, mark. a check mark. Yeah. Thank you. So in other words, like so if you just kind of zero kind of zoom back out to the app I built. Basically it's an input field with the button. When you click the button, it takes what you typed into the field, your to do puts that in one column and then in the column next to it, it sets the status to false. So there's nothing there, but if you check it off, then um, you'll get a, you'll get a little check mark next to it. So pretty simple stuff. But I, I think that, you know, there's a reason why to do applications are often like one of the yes. first things you build when you're in a new environment. And because there's just a lot of like basic maneuvers that are pretty instructive in terms of like getting your bearings in a, in mm-hmm. a new environment. Well, yeah. Cause um um, it exercises all the common um, create, replace, update, or at least create and update because you're updating the status. It exposes you to how in the world am I going to be dealing with this particular language's object structure? Um, and or how do I deal with uh, collections of these things? Um, the very basic thing of how do I do with, deal with assignment? Like, how do I create these things? And Lil definitely has its own twist on things. Like when I first read it, I couldn't get over this colon. The colon is the assignment operator. It's natural now that I've done it a couple of times, but the first time I was reading it is I couldn't get past seeing, Oh, this is a JavaScript label. Like, yep. it, it, so my, the syntax parser in my brain was, was throwing syntax errors. Um, but then it's like, you get into it and you go, Oh, these, all these kind of cool things. And, like there's some of the language parts of the language that that um um I think both of our projects could be uh, could dig into further, but like with the grids, it is kind of like a little in memory database. Like you can insert rows and query it and get all of this kind of information out of it. And so like Lil, the scripting language seems built purpose built to make this kind of stuff easier to deal with than, than if I were in JavaScript land, right? Um, I'd have to do all sorts of things to wire up an HTML table to do the CRUD based operations that Decker does, like, not quite for free, because you still have to figure out the right the incantation to make it work. But it's a lot less boilerplate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, ha- having a grid as a first class citizen, um, in terms of widgets is, um, you know, when I when I first kind of looked at Decker that I wasn't really thinking about it in this way of like build out a little application or something. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, that's an interesting choice. I wonder how grid made the cut for widget and like it, everything you just said, it's like, well, because it is a first class citizen, it's just a widget. Like by, you don't, there's not very little for you to have to do yeah, uh, to get all of this functionality. And otherwise, I mean, if, if that wasn't in Decker, um, I think you could still do some of this stuff, but it sure would be a bigger pain. Um, and, you know, yes. because every time you wanted to add a line, you would be basically adding like a new text and, uh, you know, like, like a, a just basically a new text field or something. And then next to it, maybe you would add like a little status checker as well. And then you'd have to write a whole script to make that work. But mm-hmm. out of like, to, in order to get most of this to work, I ended up, um, so what I found was at first I, you know, obviously there's a button there. So I just attached a script to a button. Um, and then I also realized that you know how like sometimes in, you well often you're in a UI and you just type in a text into a field and hit enter and expect mm-hmm. that that does the thing. Well, <laughs> yes. uh, you won't get that exactly with Decker, but it does support out of the box uh, shift carriage return to to fire off a run event from mm-hmm. the field, the text field, and so you can leverage that. 
So then, so that's what I wanted to do. I was like, well, I want the button to work, but I also want if someone like knows to hit shift and return that that should also do the same thing. Yes. So now you have this like thing where it's like, well, that's going to turn into code reuse if I attach the script to each one of those individual widgets. So mm-hmm. what can we do about that? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the cool things is, uh, you know, you the card and the deck itself also have scripts that you can use. So I ended up just uh, on the card that has my little to-do application. I just stashed a new function in there called add item. And functions, by the way, uh, are, are in in Lil or odd to me because like they, <laughs> they're they all, interesting. Yeah, I mean they all look like uh, they all look like events. So like the way that you define a function is you do on, and then the name of the function, and then do body a function and then there's an end statement uh, mm-hmm. and keyword when you're done so anyways that's fine i mean it was not not hard to figure out it's just more about like trying to find it in the documentation to yes. see like how do i write a function uh so the cool thing is uh if you have um uh so like a, if you have a function on the card script itself the widgets just naturally get access to that function. They can just call it. Oh, there's nice. no, there's no sort of like, which you know, naming a, a scope or something. So I mean, mm-hmm. in JavaScript, this would be called like kind of pl- polluting your, <laughs> your <laughs> polluting global, global environment. Yes. yes, exactly. But uh, you know, for for something like this, I think it's perfectly acceptable. And it was nice to see again that um, Decker knows what it is and tunes the language was tuned to just like kind of help you get things that it knows you want you're going to want to do done yeah it felt like um at first i was going like uh in my mind is like oh i wish there were javascript as the language or another language that i that i know um but the more that i've played around with lil is like it is very much um it, it is targeting those very specific needs of, oh, you've got a grid of data or you're dealing with events because, I mean, everything in, in terms of Decker and these like um, cards, you're waiting for the user to do something. So it kind of does make sense to be like event driven programming. And so it makes sense that like, oh, these functions, they're also events because you can trigger them from other things. And why not have them be and be more like events than than our typical understanding of a function or a procedure or what have you. Um, so it was very interesting to kind of dig into that, the language a little bit more and like, oh yeah, the, these things all exist for a reason. You didn't pick, like you didn't avoid JavaScript just because it's like, oh, this language is fine tuned for the environment that it supports. Yeah. I mean, it definitely this in JavaScript would have been a lot more code <laughs> yes. uh, <laughs> to say the least. Did you get into formatting columns in your grids at all? I did a little. Um, So in my particular example, which is a a podcast episode listing, um, it is not nearly as dynamic as yours in terms of like the user being able to add, uh, like add a new episode to the list or what have you. Um, It's a little bit more static. That was my biggest challenge was the documentation does say, oh, here's how you um, format columns. And then it's just a list of format types or column types. And what I was missing was how do I format the format string? Um, So like my first attempt was I'm going to just put some commas, like separate everything by commas. And maybe it does work that way. I don't know, but um, I I was not getting any actual (laughs) results. Right. Yep. And what got me, so I got rid of the commas and I started importing some data. And then what I was running into was, 
Secondly was how do I get data in? And I finally went to doing it with a CSV format because um, um, dealing with like long episode titles in the REPL was, I tried it once and I was like, nope, I'm going to go with CSV because I have more characters on the screen, easier editing. Um, but then I was getting like double or triple the number of columns I thought I was going to get. And part of it was because the I had misunderstood how column types work. So I read through that first list of column types and there's like um, string, um, uh, uh, floating point, integer, Boolean, the, the, the various things that you had kind of just mentioned. And then there was another list that says, oh, and by the way, if you want some of these to be non-editable, because like, like in this, my example, it's a podcast list, like make those locked fields, like they're not editable by the user. Um, they said like, you can use another character to make this show as a string, but it's not editable by the user. And I read that as a modifier. So I ended up in my column format. Um, I think for my example, I ended up with like, um, SL for string lock, string lock. And I, and I repeated that a few times over and that was causing the multiple columns because it turns out like L is not a modifier. It is a type all on its own. Yeah. It's another column format. Exactly. Do you know what that one happened to be? Um, so I ended up with a column in my example of just three L's L L L because they're all strings. Um, and they all should be locked. Like they're not editable. Um, and that's what I eventually came down to, but the permutations that I tried (laughs) (laughs) was a little bit absurd. Um, I, at one point I had the string, the string format of I, I L because I thought you could have like an, a locked integer string. So my first list of columns was season episode title and URL, which was actually turning out to be overkill because limited screen space. Um, and you could condense the season ep- episode number into one field. Um, but the, that first value I ended up like with like I L I L S L S L. And it was coming up with eight columns. It's like t- really tightly compressed. Like you can't even see what the data was inside there. And it's like lots of zeros because if something is not defined in Lil, it's not going to throw an error. It's going to put zero in that mm-hmm. value. So that kept throwing me for a little bit of a loop. Um, but finally got there in the end, like doing the CSV route and understanding that the format is like one character per column that made all the difference in the world. Yeah. That one character per column thing was the big unlock for me too. I I went down that path of putting in the commas also trying to figure out whether or not I needed to prepend, um, a percent sign to Mm -hmm. these things. It was unclear to me whether or not that was necessary. Um, Another thing was actually just figuring out where was the entry point for setting the format. Um, yes. So you 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 can basically just like say, for example, like the the right answer is you use whatever you named your grid, right? So in my case, it was to do list, and then there's just a dot format property on that, and then you can assign it with the colon, right? So you use the mm-hmm. colon to assign a string, and that string is the one. So in my case, I had a my 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 grid layout is pretty simple. It was just an item and a status. And so the item should be a string. So it's lowercase s. The status was a, again, that's one of the special things called a, a Boolean icon. So that's like, that's noted as a capital B. Mm-hmm. So um, I have a, you know, lower, so it's to do list.format uh, becomes, apparently the colon, you're supposed to say that in, when you say it out loud is becomes ah, according okay. to their docs. So to do list.format becomes the string lowercase s uppercase b um 
but yeah, I, I think for a while what I was trying to do was also like if you if you look in their docs around uh, on topics related to formatting, there's a lot of talk of you will have the like when they give you examples, there's the value and then the keyword format and then the format. No, no, it was the other way around. So it's it's the format, like whatever the format kind of mm -hmm. like, you know, incantation would be. In my case, it's SB and then the the keyword format and then, um, you know, whatever value it is that you want to use, some, something like that. So that would work in a REPL, but for whatever reason, as I was trying to assign values yeah. into the individual rows, that, that wasn't working. And ultimately what I realized was that you, you don't do it in a grid based on the row. You do it based on the column. But right. that, that took me a, a pretty long while to kind of come to that conclusion. Yeah, that I that was probably um, I ran into a few roadblocks. Um, the lack of networking was was obviously the big one in terms of making it dynamic. This particular thing with the column formatting was a big roadblock. Um, getting data into it um, without having to uh, do a lot of stuff in the REPL was also a challenge. Um, but yeah, the column formatting stuff um, definitely my biggest. Um, difficulty um I, I was like i was trying to figure out like i i want to be able to figure this out on my own i was like an inch away from saying okay i'm going to go open up one of the other examples and really figure it out because i could just look at everything they've done um, of course that's a little bit of a spelunking exercise because you have to figure out which script are things in or which widget is doing what but that's that's part of the fun but um, I finally, just before I got to that point, I was like, oh, that realization kicked in. Now, I think what's interesting for me, like I didn't go the route of setting the format and code. Um, if you double click the widget um, when you're in widget mode, you can get a little properties panel and format happens to be right there as well. What? And so you can set the <laughs> format there. What? Oh, and there so it is. Okay, <laughs> great, great. Yes. And so I think that's what's really interesting about the environment is like, I mean, there's a few ways to do things. So you could have a like a dynamic grid that could change up its format. Um, so I see why that format property is accessible from the script. Um, but on the other side, it also kind of encourages you to build things out um, just by setting properties directly or like, um, like I don't have code that adds each episode into my grid. I just imported it. Um, if you select a table, a widget in interact mode, and then there's a file import table. And you can go pull in a CSV from there. And so I don't have to write any code at all to initialize my table. It's just part of the environment now. Um, so that's another area where it feels a little bit, um, um, it's this interesting mix of code. Like in JavaScript, we would imagine you have to initialize everything. You have to add these rows from some, from some data source. And there I've got some code like on page load, add, add all these rows in there. But it's, I could also just, do that in HTML, no code required. Um, and so it's kind of that, like that weird mix of your content is part of the environment. Like you're not starting from zero every time, whatever content you had. And in fact, whatever row you had selected <laughs> is part of the state of that environment. So like actually when you load the page that I, I shared, I think actually it defaults to episode six because that is a row I had selected when I exported it. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, it so is. That's super it is interesting. more than just the, the, the script that you have in, in the environment setting things up. It is very much like the last state that you were in when you export is what users see.
Okay. Yeah, that's really, that's neat. So, okay. My takeaway from that is that, so in order to set things up while you were building the project, you imported a CSV, but once you did that, that's baked into the environment. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause that was, that was one of the things I was kind of wondering about is like how to sort of like maintain state or some sort of, you know, source data if there's, yeah. Okay. So that, that, that's really interesting. And that, that kind of gives me something to, to think about as well in terms of like other interesting things that you could do. Um, yeah. And to that point also, there's, I know there's some commands and Lil, I didn't have a full chance to, to explore these, but um, I like, especially when you're, when you're thinking about a to-do list, you could also say like, well, maybe I want to export that to-do list. There are some commands that let you do like write CSV and read CSV and write XML and read XML from Lil. I don't know how they would work in a browser, but at least in the desktop environment, they can go go um, save and read some files. So you have a way of at least you know being able to import and export some state programmatically as well. Okay. So there's maybe some some interesting things to explore there. Um, but that's the other thing is like Lilt, the Lil terminal, the the scripting side of the house that you can run from the command line has those very same tools. So I think there's a way to wire it up and say, oh, go read CSV and in, in Lilt and attach it to the deck, generate a new version of the deck. And there's your dynamic um, regeneration. Uh, that's super fun. Well, cool. Um, what do you think? I mean, just like take overall takeaways of just like or yeah. experience using Ducker. I, I, I will say um, I had a, a huge amount of fun playing around with it. I am going to keep playing around with it just because it is very much. I love all things retro. It scratches that itch. Um, it is um, it is charming in a nostalgic way. Um, there are parts of this where I'm glad we don't necessarily write complex apps this way anymore. Um, and this was a challenge with, like, say, v, the VB, the visual basics of the day um, where it, it can be, it's fine on smaller projects or where you're the only developer, but there's a lot of, there's some magic going on underneath the hood um, that to wire things up. And like, how do you, if I'm dragging buttons to a canvas, how do I generate those auto, automatically from a, like in a declarative form? Oh. So you're back to doing some of this in, in an imperative way. Um, so I'm in some ways, like, I'm glad we don't do this all the time, but for like, quick, rapid prototyping, being able to get something like that looks creative on paper uh, or, or, or in pixels, like it was super fun to do. Um, and initially the language was a, was a slight, like a little bit off-putting to me, but as I dug into it, the language is starting to grow on me. And there's areas that I haven't even begun to explore, like um, being able to do um, one of their examples is Conway's Game of Life. Mm. Um, and there's some interesting constructs in there that it's like, I'm just dying to dig into. It's like, how in the world is it doing that? Because it's very succinct to to do Conway's Game of Life. And in any other language that I've done this in, it, that takes a little bit of work. And it's like six lines of code or something like that. Um, uh, a little bit absurd. And it works really, really kind of nicely. Um, so there's areas there that I want to dig into. Um, there's definitely things I would love to see added. Like I, I, I would dearly love to see network requests and a little bit of like parsing of like a JSON response or a fetch res uh, RSS response um, or what have you. And that would just like, that would like complete the deal for me almost. Um, and maybe this is probably asking an awful lot, but like um, one thing that I did miss, like was with this, with the script editing, 
it was hard to, um, in something that I had built, it was easy to keep track of this thing has the script or this thing doesn't have the script, which element has my script. Um, it'd be nice to have a little bit more structure around what elements have scripts, how are, how can I go find them? And having that, that, the, the, a two up view, one for the script and one for say a panable version of my UI or something like that, um, would have been really nice to have versus go into script mode, save it, close it, go refer back to my variable, come back in and make the changes. Mm. And the REPL helps there, don't get me wrong. Um, but having like a, a a floating script panel that I could type in, you know, might be might be super nice. But it was, I had a blast playing with it. How about you? <laughs> yeah, same. It was, I, I find myself just like staring at the UI that you built because it includes the uh, our podcast image. And whatever that sort of like highly dithered one bit Mm -hmm. image style is, whatever that's called, is that's so just takes me back to being a small kid on a Mac (laughs) in the 80s. And like that was so impressive to see anything like that on a screen Mm -hmm. at the time. And so like just adding a little bit of imagery to the UI just changes it um, and, and really just I think it's really nice to look at. Um, But yeah, I think I just had a great time with this. I'm glad that. you know, I, I think if there's another world where if we weren't doing this podcast, I might have read the Hacker News article and been like, oh, that's neat. And then moved on with my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like having a real reason to kind of dig in so we could like compare notes and just kind of chat about it. Uh, I actually, yeah, it's just like a fun little diversion for a weekend to, you know, part of my weekend anyway, it's just to noodle around with it. Um, if I had to if I had to add one more thing to that wish list, I think I might, um, you know, add on kiosk mode. I'm not sure if that's a thing it supports because like, again, like you can imagine a world where I I keep coming back to like, I want like some minor home lab sort of thing to do with Decker. And, uh, but I don't want my five-year-old to be able to like come in and (laughs) modify, (laughs) modify the scripts. Cause believe it or not, like they, they always find a way (laughs) to get in there and and do that kind of stuff. So I'm not sure if the kiosk mode exists. I mean, one of the cool things about, hypercard and decker uh are that you can get under the hood if you want to i mean even your browser is like that too at the at its core you can really go under you know a web browser gives you the ability to inspect the source mm-hmm. and have a look at it and you know you get a little REPL in there for your javascript and, and all kinds of things um so th- that's really cool but there are times where you that you really don't want that and having a kiosk mode where it's just like this is pure user only like you can't go in and peek under the hood or yeah. mess things up uh, would be nice to have. Yeah, I did come across um, when I was digging around and I have not tried this to play around with it at all. So I do not know if this meets that request. Um, but there is a spot where um, when you're saving your, uh, not when you're saving your deck um, in the file menu properties and there is a protect button. And so it's kind of a multiple step uh, route to get there. And it says it will export um, a locked file. Now, I don't know if that means just like the elements are by default locked or if like you can like how far you can dig into it. Like uh, is scripting or is everything visible? Like maybe you could inspect the scripts, but you can't edit them. Or is like it a full on kiosk where none of that other stuff is attached? So that might be something I try after this is like, what does my example do in a protect mode? But it might be um, the developer might have thought about that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, that sounds like a reasonable. I mean, instead of like the global sort of this is in kiosk mode, instead you need to go through and protect things. But there might be a 
a smart way to do that via the script even that might I mean, if nothing else, that like you can kind of like have a list of the names of all of your widgets and then just like lock those on load mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, again, kind of like that where the content and your code are living together. Um, that's always been like one of my um, uh, question marks. And when I've ever I've played with small talk is you can so clobber your execution environment that you can't like everything is toast, like because all of the apps and all of the functionality, the editor, the OS itself, they're all baked into this environment. You can go see their code and you can go edit their code, which means highly customizable, also highly dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. Um, and like in, in same thing in this case, although no one's necessarily surely going to be doing like production, hugely important apps on Decker. Like um, if you didn't have that locked capability, you could like, in my case, you could right click on the or you could click on the table and import your own podcast list, which would be totally fine, um, but not what you're after in, in terms of a kiosk mode or whatnot. Um, so but I think it's a, an interesting paradigm to be in where it's like content and code are living side by side and encouraging user interaction, discovery and editability. Like you could easily remix this into your own podcast list or what have you. That's super cool. Well, a huge shout out to the developer, John yes. Ernest. Uh, this is clearly a labor of love that is just like wildly deep how far it goes. It's amazing. And uh, has been an absolute joy to play with. So yeah, hopefully we can kind of keep this one going a little bit. But it's like I said, it's been a, a wonderful diversion, a little bit of a walk down memory lane, but also like in a in a more modern environment where you're also mm-hmm. like i find myself thinking of forward about like you know what are some new things i could do with this that wouldn't have occurred to me back in the 90s yes yeah and i think it's that's the same reason that i've enjoyed looking at it too is like oh this is super cool it is it is working within the limitations of it but now you're also it's it's integrating nicely into a modern environment with like the little terminal and these other things and now the keep the possibilities um start to multiply and the gears start turning and um I have I have a feeling I have a few weekends in in near term weekends of playing around with this even more. Well, awesome. As always, Carrie, it's been a pleasure to chat. Likewise. Until next time, I'd rather be scripting in Lil. Thanks for listening to this episode of I'd Rather Be Scripting. If you love scripting, terminals, Z shell, JavaScript development, and other random technology tangents as much as we do, we'd love to hear from you. You can always leave a review on your preferred podcasting platform, or you can reach out to us via the social links on our website, I'dRatherBeScripting.com. Until next time, I'd rather be scripting.